happening. And we are gonna be in the same series uh, again in the uh, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're gonna look at another passage today where we'll find Jesus in the New, or in the Old Testament. And so I wanna encourage you to take your copy of God's Word, whether it's on your tablet or in your hands in, a book, in the form of a book, and uh, turn to Exodus chapter uh, 12. Exodus 12. And we're gonna be looking at the Passover. And uh, you know, the one thing is, my guess is that the majority of us in this room right here are Gentiles. We're not Jews, right? So we can't help from being able to see it from a Gentile perspective. So when we look at the Passover this morning, I'm not gonna take it and break down every element of the Passover to show how it relates to the, the, the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, but very much, a, in a sense, a broad, but a foreshadowing of who Christ, or who God was showing with that meal and what it represented. Uh, we can look and we can see that uh, Christ is represented and, and, um, and uh, alluded to in the bitter herbs and whenever they had gone so long without being able to worship God and then now God was going to lead them in to a new freedom that they'd never experienced before. Uh, the unleavened bread, obviously, um, leaven many times was seen as sin and so the bread without the leaven was seen as without sin and they were, it was going to, they were not gonna take time for it to rise and they're gonna to have to move out in a hurry just like Christ was without sin and he is the bread of life. And then of course the lamb, which if you know anything about the Passover, you'll see that here. You know, in about a week and a half, we're going to uh, have a dinner that we call Thanksgiving. And we're going to be getting with uh, friends and family and expressing and having this great meal. And we know what our Thanksgiving meal, we have a traditional idea of our Thanksgiving meal. Uh, you know, it's represented so well on a, Rock, a Norman Rockwell painting. You know, you got the big old plump turkey right there in the middle of the table and the family's all gathered around it. And, and we, we think about what that's gonna come. You know, we got the traditional uh, elements of this meal. We've got the, of course, the turkey. We've got the cranberry sauce. We've got the stuffing. We've got the gravy gravy, we got the rolls, I'm getting hungry even just talking about it right now. And then of course we bring it all to a conclusion with the, uh, the pumpkin pie for the dessert that we're going to have or, or a pecan pie or whatever. And, and all these things have come through time and we think about that when we think of Thanksgiving, that's kind of what we think of in all those different elements. And we hearken back to what would have been the first Thanksgiving, so to speak, back in 1621. When the Wampanoag people were with the colonists, the pilgrims in Plymouth, the Plymouth colony, and there was great harmony between them at that time. Uh, before we had the, 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 the division and the, and the conflict between the in years that would follow. But there was great harmony there. In fact, the, 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 uh, um, uh, the, American, the early Americans, um, Native Americans, helped the colonists survive that winter. And they taught him several things about farming and how to grow crops here in the new land and all. So there was a, a time where they gathered together and said, we must express thankfulness to God for how he has blessed us. And that would have been, the pilgrims gave other times uh, uh, you know, throughout the year that they would express gratitude to God through a meal and so forth. Now our meal today is probably very different than what the meal was back in that day and time. You know, they probably actually had deer and they probably had ducks 
you know, and geese, you know, that they had. And they may even had fish, you know, in the meal as well because there were rivers close by. And, uh, and then they, they would have the corn, uh, but it was probably like in the form of like a cornbread or a corn porridge, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, I don't, they didn't give a lot of details about the meal. Uh, William Bradford, one of the other colonists, just kind of made an offhanded comment in one of his writings about there being some wild turkeys in a shed or in a storage place one time, but... It wasn't lined out like what we think of today. You know, that comes from tradition. In fact, what's interesting is George Washington and also Abraham Lincoln, both presidents, uh, encouraged the nation and made a proclamation to have a time of thanksgiving and prayer. But it wouldn't be until 1941 when President Roosevelt would actually sign it into law as a national holiday. So you think about that. 1621... To 1941, that's a pretty big gap, right? And what all was included in it and what all the form that it took and so forth. And that was all an expression of men to God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But it was unlike the Passover. Because see, the Passover, God gave specific instructions and it was for the purpose. Thanksgiving for us, while it is a wonderful time to express thankfulness to God, it is not part of his overall redemptive plan like the Passover. And so when we look at the Passover, or Pesach, uh, also referred to, uh, it was given specific instructions by God, right down to what they would eat, how they would prepare it, when they would eat it, and what it was for. Because what God was going to do is he was going to lead a people who were in captivity. He was going to lead a people of slaves that had been in slavery for some 400 years. And he was going to create something new out of those people. And this would be the catalyst. This would be the pivotal time. Uh, they weren't even going to celebrate the first part of their year the same as all the people around them. It would be totally unique. He was going to give them a new identity, a new land, a new leader in Moses, and then also a renewed relationship with God himself. You see, imagine 400 years. We really can't even get our heads around that, 400 years. You see, they've been told stories about, uh, you know, obviously Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, of course, uh, Mark led us in that great study of that, that, that pivotal event between, with Abraham and Isaac and how God provided the sacrifice. That Abraham didn't have to worry about it in those three days when they were traveling and they didn't pack a sacrifice because he just followed God and God was the one that provided the sacrifice. He was prepared one way, but then God said, no, now I know your heart is fully devoted to me. Here's the sacrifice, which was a ram that was caught over in the brush. Well, so it is with God. He's giving specific instructions here, and he's going to give this new leader, but he's also going to renew that relationship with them. Now, they, this, he was going to reintroduce himself to a people. He had not forgotten them, even if maybe they had forgotten about him. And so this was going to be a significant event in the life of, of, of Israel. But you know what? From the very beginning, God didn't just give, call Abraham out of the land of Ur and then into the promised land to just simply start another nation that would be great in the world 
or just to a, a nation that would be uh, a particular ethnic people, uh, would serve a, have a very unique and strange religion. He wasn't just doing that with Abraham. He had greater plans than what he wanted to do with Abraham. Abraham would be the man that God would use and through his descendants to introduce the world to the one true God. All of the people around them were polytheists and they worshiped many gods. But through Abraham, the world would learn about the one true God. And you and I are recipients of that wonderful, wonderful work that God began even in the life of Abraham. So they were going to give him a new beginning. If you have your Bibles open now to the 12th chapter of Exodus, we're going to just pick out some verses here along as we provide context. Okay, in verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. He was going to give him a new calendar, a new land, days of fasting and worship, days of remembrance, a place of worship and the priesthood. And he was also going to give him a legal code. He's going to give him rule, laws to live by. You see, God was taking a people who had nothing. They had the history of the patriarchs, of course, but for 400 years they had been slaves. And so now he was literally building a nation out of a group of people who had been slaves. He was going to give them holidays. He was going to give them feasts. He was going to give them a history. He was going to give them things that meant certain things in their development as a nation. He was starting from scratch. And he even said, and the first day of your day will be this Passover, the first day of the year. And of course, we know that that is in the month of Nisan, and that falls between March and April every year on the Gregorian calendar, or in our calendar when we also celebrate Easter. The Passover meal was going to be like the tabernacle in many ways. And of course, all through the Old Testament, we see many, many uh, foreshadowings of Christ. And, and things, events, and circumstances that pointed towards Christ. But it was very much like the tabernacle because all the elements of the tabernacle, God was very specific in describing to Moses how the tabernacle was supposed to be built, what materials they were supposed to use, and what it represented. But it had an immediate context, but then it also had a context way in the future. So just like the Passover meal had an immediate context, he was bringing the people of uh, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, out of captivity, out of Egypt. So it was with the tabernacle. It had an immediate context because he was going to provide them a place for for themselves, a place of worship. But in that, all the elements pointed towards Jesus, the coming Messiah, the Son of God. One of the big ones, obviously, is the fact that there was only one gate into the outer court. There was only one way they could go through. And the colors that were used on that gate represented different aspects of royalty and and different aspects of the Savior, different aspects of the Son of God. But remember what Jesus said, that you must come through him him alone for salvation. No one comes to Father but through me, Jesus said. One way in only one way. And so all of these things had these elements and these immediate contexts, but now these people, these people that had been enslaved for so long were going to experience a new beginning. Look at verse three. Tell all the congregation, and by the way, this is the first time that the word congregation is used for the people of Israel here. They weren't just going to be an ethnic group. They weren't just going to be a nation or another country. They were going to be an assembly of the people of God. 
And he tells them, the congregation of Israel, that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If a household was too small, then they were to get with another household. If the family was too small, they'd get with another household because God did not want any of the meal wasted, thrown out. It was all to be consumed. And he was very specific about all of that. Look at verses five and six. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Why didn't God just tell them to take the lamb the day of the feast? The day of the sacrifice. Why did he ask them to take the lamb to go out and get a small lamb out of the goats or the, or the sheep. Separate it from the fold take it, and since they were separating it from the fold, it's very possible that they actually brought it into the house where the family lived, brought the lamb into the house for four days. You parents, if you've ever gotten a new little pet, you, can realize, you, you realize how quickly you become attached to a little pet just in four days. You see the little kids, they want to hold it, they want to pet it, they want to care for it, they want to feed it. Oh boy, in the initial stages, they're all ready to feed it and care for it, but it doesn't take long, does it? But anyways, they want, oh, they just, they're just so enamored with this little animal, this little pet, a new kitten, a, a, a puppy or whatever. This little lamb was brought into the house. They had to feed it, they had to care for it. It was separated from the rest. Every time it bleated, they would be reminded that in a matter of days, this little animal, which had done nothing wrong, would be sacrificed for them. God wanted it to be personal. Salvation is personal. You don't just get one lamb for everybody and then everybody just says, okay, yeah, I just, uh, I'll just pretend that I participated in, 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 in with, with that one lamb. No, every lamb was to be consumed by each family and it was to be personal. That they understand that when the lamb's blood was shed, it was personal. Now they remembered this little animal that they had for four days and that was sacrificed for them. It seems so unfair. But those were the specific instructions that were given to them by Moses who had received them from God. So they took that lamb years ago back in 2009, I believe it was, when I was working in the missions department, we took a mission trip with Pastor Ramon Medina and his wife Nora and several from the Spanish congregation and a, several, uh, about two or three of us from the, the English congregation and we uh, went to do a mission trip in Cairo, Egypt. And while we were in Egypt, we also went up to Alexandria. And when we were up at Alexandria, it was the breaking of the, uh, of the, the fast at the end when Ramadan had already been celebrated and they were, had all of these animals. When we arrived in Alexandria, it was the day before, and we noticed that there would be pickup trucks going down and there would be animals in the back. You know, they're carrying their animals with them. You know, there would be goat, goats or, 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 or small uh, bulls or whatever, various sheep, of course, and they'd be going, and we just saw them everywhere. We looked around, they're all everywhere. But that night, Greg Brand and I, we were roommates in there, and Greg Brand and I were in our hotel room, and all of a sudden, of course, it's hot, they don't have central air conditioning, all the windows are open, 
And when the time came for them to sacrifice all of those animals, all you could hear was the, the, the cries and the screams of all these animals that were all being sacrificed. I mean, I should say slaughtered, not sacrificed. It was not a sacrifice, but slaughtered for the meal that night. And I looked at Greg and we looked at each other like, what is that? And then we realized, wow, they're killing all the animals. And the next day when we went out in the street, we saw the, the, the hides of the animals stacked up and sometimes they'd be about four feet high on the corners and there was literally blood running through the streets. I had never seen anything like that, haven't seen anything like it since. But it sure made an impression on me. And when we read this here, we said that at twilight they'll all kill their lambs. And what that sound must have been like while their blood was being shed for them. But they experienced a new beginning. All of this was part of them becoming a nation unto God, God's own people through which he would reveal himself to the world. In verses 24 and 27, it talks about how God wanted them to remind their children every year when they would have this celebration, this meal, to take the time to instruct their children. What is the meaning of this? He said, when the kids ask, what's the meaning of this? He said, take time to explain to them that this represented the time when God passed over the houses of the Hebrews. He passed over. They were saved, if you will, because of their act of faith with the blood of the lamb that they would put on the doorpost and on the, on the lintel. But take the time. Folks, we in America, even though it's not anywhere like what the Passover is, but we do celebrate Easter. At each of these times when we have, we have Thanksgiving coming up, Christmas coming up, how tragic it is when we get so stressed out about these opportunities that are really one to th give thanks to God and then also to praise God and to worship God for putting on flesh and coming as a person and, and coming among his own in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. How sad it is when we rush through those times and we get so stressed out because of getting all the right gifts and all the right presents and, the, and all, the different, uh, 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 the, uh, all of the different schedules that we've got to work and whether or not we're going to have enough feel a food and who's bringing what and all that sort of thing. and we get so stressed out folks wouldn't it be incredible as God's people people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ if somehow some way with God's help we could clear all of that aside so that we would take time to teach our children and to remind one another what do we do this for why are we even doing this what does it mean what does it mean it's about the Lamb of God. They not only experience a new beginning, but they also experience a new forgiveness, a new forgiveness as God reintroduced himself to them. Exodus chapter 12, verse seven, it says, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two, two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now God had already preserved them through the plagues because the plagues would affect the Egyptians but they wouldn't have affect the, the Hebrews. But he's already telling them, I want you to do this. When you, when you 
when you slaughter the lamb and when you prepare the meal, keep some of the blood, take the blood, and put it on your doorpost and on the lintel. Now, why didn't God just say, go splash some on your door? He was very specific. He said, go put them on the doorpost and on the lintel. And when Christ was crucified on the cross, he had a crown of thorns and the blood was flowing from his head and his, two, his wrists were both pierced through because for our iniquities as he was pierced through. And it covered, you have the cross that's right there before you, but then also the whole doorway, the one way to God to be spared for the God's judgment to pass over you was right through that doorway that had the blood on either side and the blood at the top. A reminder to us. You see, everything they were doing and everything God had them do look, was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We have the tremendous benefit that when the apostles instructed us and taught us about this in their writings, we're able to look back and go, ah, wow. There was a purpose in everything. God had a purpose in everything. And he had a purpose in the two plagues as well. What were the purpose of the plague? Well, number one, he was introducing himself again to the Hebrews, to the Israelite people, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And also, they had heard, I'm sure, the stories how Joseph had risen up to be the second most powerful man in Egypt at one time, many, 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 many years ago. So they'd heard about that. And they'd heard about that they followed one God as opposed to many gods like the people around them. But the problem is that when you look in the book of Exodus, it says, but there arose a king that knew not Joseph. And so God was coming, and through these plagues, he was clearly showing, he was introducing himself, but he was also showing himself to the Egyptians, saying that he was the one true God, and all of their gods were not only powerless, but they were basically nothing. They were nothing. Every one of the plagues uh, confronted one of the false gods of the Egyptians, whether it was the blood in the Nile, uh, or a god or a goddess, or the, the god of fertility, goddess of fertility, or the god of the, of the weather, or whatever it was. Every one of those plagues, God was showing himself against one of the gods of the Egyptians and saying, your god is nothing. I'm the true god. And for a moment, even Pharaoh came to the point and says, who is this God? He, he even finally just said, okay, wait, wait, I don't know this God. But unfortunately, his heart was hardened ultimately. But God was confronting them. And he was showing them that all these gods were false. But you know what? The people in 400 years of being in captivity, don't you think they picked up some of the habits and the customs of the people that they lived among? Sure they did. Yeah. And God was delivering them from that as well. He was giving them a new beginning. He was giving them a new forgiveness because now through an act of faith of taking the blood and putting it on the doorpost, it was an act of faith. As he said earlier, it'll be a sign to you. Not to me. It's a sign to you. He said, when I come through and I see the doorpost, I'm just seeing the faith that you have exhibited. The faith that you have uh, you have shown by following through with the instructions of what was required. It was assigned to you. When we give our faith, to, uh, uh, when we give our trust to Jesus Christ and we are born again and we go through and follow through the next step of being baptized, 
That's not some sort of a sign to God. He already knows where our heart is. We've been born again. It's a sign not only to us, it's a step of faith, but it's also a sign to everyone else that I have my faith in Christ and Christ alone. What we did a while ago when Pastor had us reach out our hands uh, when, when Chris was up here and to pray for him. That was just simply an act of faith. That was a sign to us in saying, Lord, we pray for this man. We, we speak on behalf of this man. It wasn't like God saying, oh, okay, now I know what they're doing. No, it was no mystery to him. It's just like in the garden whenever the man and the woman had sinned against God. The one thing, just the one thing that he told them not to do and they did that very thing. And then later on when he comes through, he says, where are you? Was it because he didn't know? They weren't pay, playing cosmic hide and seek. God knew exactly where they were and he, they, he knew exactly what they'd done. But he was asking them, now do a self-assessment. Now that you made this decision, now that you acted on your own, now that you thinking you knew better, where are you now? Where do you find yourself now? And he does the same with us whenever we go astray and we sin against the Lord. Where are you? Where are you? So when God was coming through, the signs on the doorposts were for them. It was their faith that was being exhibited, saying, we trust in you, God. We trust in you. But they took some of their gods. You see, the Israelites, they were always struggling with this because uh, it wasn't that they gave up God altogether. They just added him with all the other gods. But God clearly says, I'll not share my glory with another. It's me only. And that was their problem. It was their problem when they left Egypt. It was their problem when they went into the new land and they would take on the gods, the gods of Baal, of the people around them. It would be their downfall. They were constantly struggling with it. And so when they had come out of Egypt, following the one true God, Moses had told them about it, the great I am, telling them that I am sent you, not we are sent you, I am sent you, but they still took their gods. And Joshua 24, 14 says, now therefore fear the Lord. Now they're about to go into the promised land. They're already out of, uh, out of Egypt. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And friend, like I said earlier, it was always God's design and God's desire to be the God of the world, not just one particular ethnic group. He didn't call Abraham just simply to be the father of another nation and to, be, and to eventually settle a land that would be revered by the three major religions of the world. Oh, God had far greater plans than that. That was only part of it. It was a means to an end, and that was so that the world would come to know God, the one true God. And that was always his intent. All along, he didn't shun people who were of a godless people. He wanted to reach those people. He wanted to reach the world. God, what he says in, in, in what Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was God's plan all the way back from the very beginning, even at the time of the Passover. Moses was married to a Cushite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Do you know what they all had in common? They were all in the line of Jesus. Pagans. 
But what was the difference? They believed God. They believed in the one true God. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Not many gods, one God. Zechariah 21, 11, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter two, verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. That's God saying that. That's when they've come back from captivity. They're reestablishing uh, and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And what does God say through the prophet? And they shall be what? My people. Who? The people of many nations. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Genesis chapter 22, and, uh, it, God uh, it was calling Abraham, and he said that you will be a blessing to many nations. In Romans 4, 3, it says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was always, it was always based on faith and belief, not works. Abraham believed. He took the knowledge that he had. He acted on the knowledge that he had of God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And then Paul says, remember, Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, steeped in the law. When he was born again, his heart was changed. What did he say? Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, oh my goodness, watch out, here we go, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How about them apples? Yes, we're, we're heirs to the promise. In John 1.29, when John was baptizing those that were, were in repentance, he says he looks up and it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, unblemished, unblemished, perfect sacrifice for you and for me. So the people had a new beginning. They experienced a new forgiveness because like us, our forgiveness is not found in us being good enough to be able to earn our way into heaven. Our forgiveness is based on faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves, it's the free gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Who makes that happen? The Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. In Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That pretty much covers the whole Old Testament. And Jesus has said, it's all about me. It's all about me. Listen, when you're God, you can say that. It's not arrogant. It's all about me. And so he gives him, he, he gives him a new beginning and he gives him a new forgiveness and finally he gives him a new freedom. A freedom. These are people that have been slaves for 400 years and he's about to free them. Free them like they've never been freed before and it would be free indeed. We even see in verses 33 through 36 that when God begins this new nation, he has a way of financing it. The Egyptians gave him all their gold and the silver because they were such at the end of themselves saying, just get out, just go, just go, yeah, here, take it, take it, take it, take it. And he filled up the treasury when he's starting the new, the new nation. 
He had prepared their hearts. He'd given them favor in the Egyptians' mind, even though it was the God of the Israelites that were bringing on all this calamity that they were suffering. Isn't that incredible? God can do that. And then in Exodus 12, 50 through 51, and all the people of Israel, look at this, it's very important. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. That's very key. They did all that the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. He brought them out of captivity and he brought them into new freedom. What do you think it would be like to walk up to a little Egyptian boy or a little Egyptian girl when they're in captivity and lean over and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They would look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean when I grow up? I don't have any dreams. I don't have any expectations. I'm gonna be a slave when I grow up. But God changed all of that. With the Passover meal that would initiate a brand new history, a brand new beginning in their lives, and they would experience a freedom like never before because now when they're going out, they could dream for the first time in over 400 years. They were related to the one true God of the universe that was rescuing them and coming towards them and pursuing them in that relationship with him as they walked with him. In Romans 6, 22, it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is what? Eternal life. Just like he had saved the, 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 the Hebrews, they never went back into captivity again in Egypt. Now, they disobeyed God, they turned away from God, they turned to other gods, and God brought judgment against them and took, them, took the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, were conquered by the Assyrians, and then later the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians, and then their freedom was once again established under the permission of the Persians. God brought all of that to care, but they didn't go back to Egypt again in captivity because he freed them. Freedom indeed. Jesus said in John 8, 32, two more verses, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is found in Jesus. Doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed. Just like the children of Israel, and just like with the beginning, with the Passover meal, you can have a new beginning in Christ. If you've never placed your faith and trust in him, if you've been trying to get through this world by just trying to make all the right decisions and trying to be good enough and to try to keep your nose clean and all that, I'm telling you, friend, you will fail. You will fail. The scripture tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in that respect, we all have a common background. We all have something that we need to be freed from, and that is sin. Sin. You can not only be freed to, to, to dream with God and to imagine with God and to become great things in God, but you can be freed from your past and freed from sin and not only that, but freed from the bondage of sin and death. And finally, John eight thirty six. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
If the Son sets you free, if the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, and you put your faith and trust in him and God passes over your sin, forgives your sin. It is atoned for once and for all. Jesus didn't have to die again because when he gave his life on the cross, he was the perfect lamb. He died once for all. No longer have to be improved upon or redone. The work is done. But have you come to faith in Christ? Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.